0: Section 33 of The Heirloom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Betty B. The Heirloom by T. Duthie Lyle. A Woman's Devotion. But while these things were happening, in England, events which will bring to a crisis, a consummation, And as far as this book is concerned, our narration of its incidents, to a close, were rapidly maturing in the city of New York. That which is known upon the map of New York City as East 27th Street is also, but less familiarly, known by another name, a name conveying it with a sense of human sorrow and human suffering. It is likewise called Via Dolores, the Way of Sorrow, or the Street of Tears, and from the many forms of human suffering which pass along it, it is not by this name of sadness inaptly called. As in the case with most of the other streets on the eastern side of the Empire City, the eastern extremity of this way of sorrow is bounded by the rushing, rolling, turbulent flood of the East River, to which at intervals we have had to refer from almost the beginning to the end of our tale. Right down at the end of this street on what is known as First Avenue, by which it is cut at right angles, built down almost upon the very water's edge, stands a huge massive edifice, or rather a group of massive buildings of hard blue stone, as strong and durable in construction as if almost they were designed to resist some hostile invasion or a siege. But since that area of the North American continent known collectively as the United States is quite large enough to accommodate comfortably any reasonable host of hostile forces which may appear on its horizon, and to invite them to a friendly banquet, or if it felt so disposed, without any inconvenience at all to its vast resources, to a five o'clock tea, probably siege-resisting fortifications in the vicinity of New York, are less of a grim reality and more an ornamental name. But still the massive structure to which we have referred has had doubtless much to do towards imparting to its adjacent thoroughfare, the title of the Street of Tears. For surrounded on every side by iron palings, high and strong, there stands here the institution known as Bellevue Hospital, an institution dedicated to the assuasion and mitigation of all the long and melancholy category of humanity's physical sufferings and woes. But as if this were not enough to impart to the adjacent street its doleful name, beyond the Bellevue Hospital and standing, built upon a framework of massive wooden piles beneath which the current of the East River actually flows, a building of obvious intent, erected and named in imitation Of a similar place in the capital of France as a temporary reception and resting place of the bodies of the unknown dead. There stands the New York morgue. For like every other great city, New York has its hidden, unrecorded, unutterable tales of human woes, its tales of anguish and sorrow too heavy for human flesh and blood to bear, ended perhaps by the revolver, perchance by the assassin's knife, or the secret crime. But unlike its Parisian prototype, the morgue of New York is a plain, square, wooden frame structure without any ornamental or architectural pretense, erected upon a platform laid over piles driven into the bed of the river and quite isolated from the land. From this platform across the East River, in a funeral boat to the cemeteries and interment grounds beyond Long Island City, there sails on its final voyage The corpse of many a one whose earthly career has closed in darkness, hidden shame, or by the hand of crime. And within those massive walls of Bellevue Hospital lay one, some of the threads of whose life are interwoven with the weft of our tale. For here, week after week, following the fire which we shortly described in Long Island City, lay the man, Merville Garnier, in his sufferings upon a bed of pain. The New York World Reporter's graphic and minute account of how Merville Garnier perished in his brave attempt to save his lover, Kathleen Venner's life, drawn in skillful word painting, as it was in all its sensational details, in all its graphic, pathetically told elements of romance, was not quite true. It was not true, therefore, it was a lie. By one of those hair-breadth escapes, one of those miraculous interpositions of providence, because to the intelligent mind there exists no such thing as chance. Although together with the fall of the charred and burning fabric of the frame house, the woman, Kathleen Venner and her preserver, had been precipitated, apparently, to inevitable destruction, like as if into a furious cauldron of flame. Yet both man and woman had escaped with life, escaped without injury they had not, for although the woman, by a more miraculous protection extended to her, was comparatively almost unhurt, yet her preserver, Merville Garnier, came very near indeed to paying for his temerity with his life. For many weeks, Merville Garnier lay in Bellevue Hospital. He lay there, his life uncertain, like one suspended by a mere gossamer thread over the mouth of the grave. But in the end, medical science and skillful treatment aided by his own natural physical strength won the grim race against death. And as he had saved Kathleen Venner, his lover, so she yearned in her ministrations to snatch him from the grave, from the very jaws of death for what miracles cannot woman accomplish in the strength and fidelity of her love. And now, day by day through convalescence, Merville Garnier was regaining and returning to a newness of life. But while Merville Garnier was thus regaining life, there was darkening, and closing around him as some web entangling his footsteps, an ever-thickening cloud. It must not be for a moment supposed that in all the weeks of van der Muren's absence from New York, that Paul Newgass, in the hours and days of semi-inactivity into which he was thereby forced, it must not be imagined that that he had not pretty completely fathomed and disentangled all the mysterious circumstances connecting the man Garnier with the Long Island City fire. It must not be imagined that he did not know of the man's whereabouts, his present state of recovery, of convalescence, and of his previous narrow escape with his life, and the use to which Paul Newgass turned his knowledge, we will proceed to weave into the tangled weft of our tale. The exquisite dyes of the Indian summer, like the European tints of autumn, were passing away, and the shadows of evening were falling over New York City and state, when we must again revert to a phase of our story now so nearly told. Within the precincts of Bellevue Hospital, situated at the foot of East 27th Street in the city of New York, to which we have in cursory sentences already referred, Merville Garnier, or the man whom we know by that name, although on the way to recovery, was still suffering from the effects of his narrow escape. For many weeks had he suffered exquisite tortures, but this acute stage, thanks to skillful treatment of his wounds, had passed. Strange to tell the woman Kathleen Venner, for whom, whatever the relations between them were, he entertained a strong affection, an affection which was returned with the strength of a woman's love, when with the falling framework and timbers of the burning domicile in Long Island City, both were dashed into what was a roaring sea of flame. Strange to tell, the preserver came within a shadow, as it were, of losing his life, while the woman, his lover, Kathleen Venner, whom he risked his life to save from destruction, came through and out of the terrible ordeal of flame, and the terrible danger comparatively unhurt, almost by fire unscathed. And now, through days and nights of agony and convalescence, as far as the rules of the institution allowed, day by day and night by night, she was tending his wants with all the solicitude of a woman's passion and a woman's love. But this we will pass over for another view of the scene. While Kathleen Venner ministered daily to her lover Merville Garnier's necessities, as far as she could, in Bellevue Hospital, while she visited him in his pain, while she smoothed his pillow, or with luscious fruits moistened his parched tongue, with a womanly instinct, if we may call it so, an instinct which is even a higher attribute than reason, she came to know that a great cloud was rising at first, no bigger than a man's hand upon their horizon, which threatened to surround, to engulf his and their life and lives. Although she loved him with a woman's love, yet she knew that there was much in his life which was obscured in mystery, was hidden from her eyes. For woman's love, too often for her own good, like the enfolded eyes of justice, shuts out the light of reason and is blind. For love is the subtlest attribute of nature, while possessing much that is beautiful, heavenly, angelic, saint-like, yet is full of anomalies which we cannot fathom. For while love is the sharpest eyed of all human passions, yet it is blind. And so Kathleen Venner, although she loved Merville Garnier with a woman's love, yet with a woman's intuition she became sensible that some danger loomed, lowered very darkly and threateningly across the horizon of his life. How she became thus sensible of danger, impending, we shall not attempt to say. But there is a knowledge deeply hidden, deeply embedded down in the profounder depths of natures, both brute and human, which we call intuition when we apply the term to a human being, and which we call instinct when we apply it to a brute. Although the subject is one on which we might enlarge infinitely, yet we must perforce leave it and pass on. And while this woman ministered to the man's daily necessities, she was the sentinel which watched for danger with a restless, vigil, and sleepless eyes. But the cloud, which we have said was no bigger than a man's hand, appeared on their horizon, was rapid in its development, and notwithstanding, Kathleen Venner's watchfulness was quick to enlarge, to expand, and to burst. It was in the cold twilight of the November evening that suddenly, as she sat in her poorly ill-furnished third-floor lodgings, at no great space from where her lover lay, that she became aware of the impending bursting of the storm. A bribed female caller had whispered something in her ear, which caused the blood which coursed through her veins to chase more quickly, to run cold, and her ears to tingle, and her heart to beat more quickly, for him she loved. She rushed from the miserable room, which was now all she called her own, for her home and her belongings she had lost. Escaping only, and barely with that, with her lover and her life, she rushed to where he lay, or rather to where he now sat, in a convalescent ward, and quickly she reached his side. For God's sake, breathlessly she half whispered in his ear, come hence, escape for your life. Then she half-dragged, half-supported him from the ward, through the wide passages and corridors of the hospital, past where the janitors should have stopped their exit, but by some inscrutable interposition of the hand of Providence they were unobserved or allowed to pass, till still, half-urging, half-dragging, she gained with her burden the outer gate, and then passed the high, strong iron palings by which the massive structure of the hospital is surrounded on every side. They stood in the street and, as she thought, free to hasten him away. But Kathleen Venner's heart seemed to leap into her mouth. Her brain seemed to whirl, as instead of aiding her lover in his escape from justice, she seemed to have dragged him into the very jaws of death or into the very hands of those who hunted for his liberty and his life. For within fifty paces of the spot where they stood upon the pavement, There hurried along in the direction of the hospital from whence the lovers had just come, Paul Newgass, with two men whom she recognized only too surely as being officers of the New York City Police. In her extremity, in the weakened state of her lover, she saw the apparently inevitable. She scarcely saw one glimmer of hope. Then she dragged him down the street to the brink of the surging flood of the East River, and then right onto the wooden framework over the rushing tide upon which stood that plain sinister wooden structure which we have already spoken of-the New York morgue, hoping within its dark shadows to escape. But it was a vain, a slender, a forlorn hope. A glance over her shoulder told her that the sharp eyes which she so dreaded were upon them. They were recognized by Paul Newgas and his confederates and pursued. Was there no hope? Was all despair? Beneath the wooden framework of the foundations of the morgue building, the rushing, rolling tide of the East River dashed and surged and foamed past them with all the turbulence of its rushing seaward flow, veritably a boiling, chilling flood. But slender as the chance was, it seemed to be the pursued band's only hope. In his days of perfect health and strength, Merville Garnier, could have plunged with confidence, could have stemmed and fought and overcome the tide, could have swum without danger of failure of his strength to the opposite shore. But now he was weakened. Death behind him, death before. Which death should he choose, was a question she then momentarily asked. But he preferred the mercy of the merciless sea scan as it was to his chances of mercy at the hands of man. There was a plunge from the framework platform of the morgue and in the semi-gloom of that cold American October night, he disappeared from view. The woman, Kathleen Venner, fell upon her knees in the coldness of the night and clasping her hands, she stretched them heavenward. Oh God, oh heaven, she ejaculated, preserve his life. Oh God, preserve his life. Scarcely had Merville Garnier escaped ere Paul Newgass and his men were upon her, as with their own eyes they saw the enactment of the perilous scene, and raving at their loss. For the second time have we had to tell in this story that the East River, receiving into its cold embrace, had cheated the little ferret man of his prey. Paul Nugas stamped, he raved, he cursed, he swore. But of what avail? But the poor body of Merville Garnier... What shall we tell of that? Tossed on the turbulent dancing waves as their veriest plaything, their various toy, thrown hither, dashed thither, the body of Merville Garnier, towards the great, broad, boundless, swelling ocean, senseless, his body drifted out with the tide. End of section thirty three